not to be outdone by Keith. I'm going for two chapters today. Ah, uh, no, I think you still have me beat when it comes to verse titles, but that's okay. Well, we are coming to a, a, a conclusion, or at least a transition, of Genesis today. Uh, we'll be in chapters 10 and 11 to cover each of these aspects and finish what's often called uh, kind of the primeval history portion of Genesis that then leads us into what we could call the patriarchal history of Genesis, where instead of the, the peoples, the early peoples and the things that God did, uh, focusing in on, on one, it goes from, from big kind of to very focused on a particular family and three, uh, three generations of that family. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're actually, after today, we're going to take a break from Genesis for the summer, and then we'll pick back up Genesis 12, probably late August or early September, depending on how long uh, the different aspects of the summer, the summer series that Keith and I will be going through. But um, I think that the emphasis of this in comparison, this passage in comparison with the rest of scripture uh, leads us to what I will have as a, as a title, which is rare. I never have titles. Uh, make it easy on, on Soundbooth today. They always come up with great titles for my sermon. I never help. Uh, they're excellent at titles. So you're, no, you have a title every Sunday. I'd be like, no, I have a title no Sundays apart from the text. So whatever if you ever see on the podcast that there's a title, that's just the creativity of these guys. So thank you, AV workers. Uh, the tower, the temple, and the throne, starting in Genesis 10 and 11. Genesis chapter 10 gives us the story of the spread of the nations. It's a story that is meant to be seen as including everyone. It starts with three brothers and it ends with 70 nations. And I'm not going to read that chapter to you, but there are a few interesting notes. Um, The three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Japheth is mentioned first in the, the nations that flow out, but he really receives the least attention And the focus of all three brothers, that's really all I'm going to say about Japheth, the focus on all three brothers ends with the same phrase, even though the order changes a little. You can see that first in verse 5. You see that? From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. Lands, language, clans, nations. Those are the four repeating aspects of that that summarize all of these different groups that spread across these 70 nations across the world. Uh, Ham is mentioned second, starting in verse 6. He gets the most attention. He's the most memorable. If you were to name a non-Jewish nation or a people group in the Old Testament, so not Israel, right? Not the Hebrews. If you were to name any other people group that you know about from any story across the Old Testament, I think there's a 90% chance that you are going to name a descendant of Ham. Sodom, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, Tyre and Sidon, that's where Jezebel came from. The Assyrians, who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonians who conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And that covers, again, like 75 to 90% of the stories. It's like everybody who opposes the people of God came from Ham. And that changes kind of in between the Testaments. But uh, that's basically the case. That's just interesting. The only singled out character, really, uh, is a Hamite. 
verses 9 through 12, um, Cush, or 8, Cush fathered Nimrod, which sounds like an insult. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Kind of throws us back to chapter 6 a little bit. Uh, Nimrod, he was a, high, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Apparently a phrase, an idiom that was familiar. Uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and etc. And so you can see, I mean, Nineveh, right? Jonah, the, the central city, perhaps groups of three cities, over um, the Assyrians. If you want to know more about Nineveh and what God's word was to them, our podcast stretches back a year ago, or at least our sermon record does. You can hear Keith preach on Jonah and preach that message of Nineveh. And then Babel, or what would become Babylon, the center of a, a kingdom named after that. And so Nimrod, you know, ancestor of not wonderful things. Then we see Shem. Shem was blessed highest back in chapter 9. He's mentioned last, without a whole lot of fanfare, more time is given to him than Japheth. But he is in that last and kind of a greatest place. We might think, oh, mention the greatest first, but it's sort of a building up to Shem. What's the point of chapter 10? Right? Reading of 70 different nations, just sort of right in the middle of that and then moving on. I think the significance is found in the conclusion of this in verse 32. Uh, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. Here it is. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. From these nations, from these three, and then from these 70, right, the nations go forth and fill the earth. Now that phrase, that might sound like, ooh, wait, I've heard that one before. Right? They, they multiplied, and they filled the earth. Oh, obedience. So if you're reading through Genesis for the first time, you get to chapter 10, get to verse 32, you might think like, oh, great. This is the fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. You might be optimistic and think like, finally, the people of earth have learned and they're obeying. Well, you'd be right about the result that God's command is being fulfilled, but you would be wrong uh, if you think that that's happening because of humanity's obedience. Uh, That is not the case. To learn what caused, I think, the spread of the nations, we need to then read into Genesis 11. We read at the beginning of Genesis 11 that the nations gather at the Tower of Babel. Nations gather at the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of, the, of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused or babbled the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. As we think about this story of the Tower of Babel, we first see the rebellion of the people. The the people, these early nations, they, they gathered together instead of continuing to spread as they've been commanded to do. And they decide to build one city, a city where they can all stay together. A city at its center would have a tower that is so high that it reaches to the heavens. And there, in this city, with this tower reaching up into the heavens, there, humanity can make a name for ourselves. Ah, this place, this tower up into the heavens, there we will have a name. This will be how we are known and remembered and our greatness proclaimed. And I think this lines up very well, this city formed by Nimrod. Nimrod is probably there. His desire to, and maybe I'm making too much of this phrase, I don't think so. There he built his kingdom. Right? Who is, who is king? Yahweh is king. And we rule under his kingdom. We're, we're to spread his kingdom. We're to be sons and daughters, kings and queens under God's rule. But here, Nimrod's just like, actually, I'm going to set up my kingdom in Babel. I'm going to set up my kingdom in Nineveh. Sinful humanity had gathered together at Babel for this purpose, to say together, we will speak our name in our language. We will, we will speak of, of us Proclaim the greatness of our own name in this one language that we share together. We will be great. Doesn't that sound familiar? Going to make a name to proclaim my greatness. I will be great, like heavenly great. It's the serpent's lie to Eve and to Adam, right? You will be like God. It's also that same pride that lives in our own hearts and how, how each of us desire to be great. And we all want to be great. Maybe just as kids, we all want to be great. And then, and then we, we struggle and we strive to be great. And some of us don't stop striving to be great. Others of us do. We kind of give up on that. We're like, oh, we failed. I'll never be great. Right? But it's all, and then we despair that we aren't great. <laughs> I will be great. I am great. Or, oh, I'm lousy, right? But because I should have been great. Making a name for ourselves is the center of our idolatrous hearts. I mean, think about your last week, your morning, I don't know. Think about your last week or month and your concern for your name and for your reputation. How many times were you driven or even have that, that inner dialogue of like, no, I am smart. And they misunderstood me. No, I am strong. I just, I happen to be sick or I stumbled. No, I, I, I am helpful. No, I am a good father. I am godly. I am, I'm right on this. And, and you need to know it and you need to know it. And everybody needs to know it so that nobody says Peter Ambler is less than, than I want Peter Ambler to be the center of the universe. And maybe you saw that I, that I am aspect growing during a discussion 
uh, that turned into an argument where you couldn't accept being wrong because your identity is tied to your reputation, even just with that one person. Our reputation, what we think of ourselves and, and what we are desperate that others would think of us. And if it, is, if it isn't about me, like what? Like life or every day or every discussion or every task. If it isn't about me, then I can be wrong and I can learn. But then as we start to learn and we start to grow in pride and that, that sense of reputation starts to build, then we lose the ability to be able to be wrong and instructed. The wise are humble and willing to receive instruction. The, the foolish are arrogant and not willing to receive instruction. Let, let those who have ears to hear, hear. <laughs> Hypocrisy then stems from a false idea about your name that uh, desperate to maintain a reputation that isn't true. Maybe it was never true. Maybe it isn't true any longer. So we put up fronts, we put up walls, we push people away because nobody can know the real us because our name, that name that we want to be true of us, that must be maintained at all costs. And we we see the pride in that. No one likes hypocrisy. We we deal with it in ourselves. We put up with it because, right, we're we're too important to fail. (laughs) Um, We hate it in everyone else because it conflicts with our own. And we see the pride in that, but do we remember as we see the pride in someone else's hypocrisy and admit the pride in our own hypocrisy, our own name, uh, reputation, seeking, that God resists the proud. The proud, those who are obsessed with their own names, God resists them. God gives grace to the humble, those who truly pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? And then listen to this, God's motivation. He, he, he chastises, punishes his people in their sin, and then he says he's going to defer his anger. This is Isaiah chapter 48. It's like, I could go further. Like, they deserve me to go further. That he says this, he's like, I'm going like, to back off. Why are you going to back off? Why do you do whatever you do, Lord? For my own sake. This is God speaking. For my own sake, he repeats it. My own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It's not the only time in Isaiah he makes that point. So when we're all about, we will make a name for ourselves, it is in direct conflict with the God who says, no, my name will be proclaimed. My name will be ultimate. And then there's a problem where you have two names or two kingdoms in conflict to each other. You enter into a war. And humanity at Babel is setting themselves up in, a, in rebellion and declaring war on the glory of God's name. And God always acts, eventually, when our names are set up in uh, enmity at odds with his name. So we see the rebellion of the people. We see the response of the Lord. Verse 5, it says, the Lord came down. <laughs> I think that there's a sarcasm there, right? We, we as humanity, we build, we build this huge tower. Its top is in the heavens. Maybe, that's, maybe they were really successful. It's like tens, hundreds of stories high up into the clouds. Like, oh, you could see it from miles away. And the Lord's like, Oh, I see it. Well, hold on. Let me, go, let me go down. Let me stoop. 
to find their huge tower. Oh, that's so cute. Almost like you would chuckle thinking Psalm 2, right? The Lord laughs and then terrifies. We're never quite as significant or successful as we think we are. We've built a tower into the heavens. My name, my reputation has spread. I'm sorry, what was that name again? Of course, the, the Marvel thing, right? I'm Star-Lord. Who? What? Half of you get that reference. We're never quite as significant or successful as we think we are. That's the reality of it. So the Lord stoops down, even humbling them in that language, then purposes to confuse their language and judgment for their rebellion. And this frustrates their plans for an unending, self-glorifying unity. And by that, by, by frustrating those plans, the Lord disperses them, which had been his command in the first place. They didn't disperse themselves. The Lord dispersed them. God always accomplishes his purposes. His word is always fulfilled, even when it requires intervention into the affairs of men. And God is free and powerful enough and frequently does interfere and intervene. He steps into the affairs of men, bringing about his purposes. He is not absent, and he is not somehow constrained to only do what we find acceptable. God is sovereign means he does, he's in the heavens, and he does whatever pleases him. So many different passages where we see the Lord stepping in and shifting and raising up or tearing down. See that across the prophets. We see that praised into the New Testament as well. God is free to do what he wants because he is God. So he's free to do this to them. And he's free to do with us as he pleases as well. As the one true and living God over all of creation and over all of human history, God never allows the sinful rebellion and and God-hating arrogance of human cities to stand forever. Never allows that to stand It may stand for generations, and we may think that it has lasted forever, or it will last forever, but it never has, and it never will. Think about this with me for a minute. Tower of Babel, you know the story. We've just read it, right? Their first attempt at that one central place, big city, skyscraper tower, our name, and God just says, nope, done. Just wipes them them across. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities reduced to rubble because their name and their way came into conflict with God's. The ten plagues that ruined the empire of Egypt. The destructions of cities like Jericho in Canaan. The destruction of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The destruction of Nineveh, of the Assyrian empire. The destruction of Jerusalem in Judah, a city built for the praise of God commandeered for the praise of men and reduced to rubble by the Babylonians who then Babylon again like Babylon at start and Babylon later right destroyed and conquered and each of these are examples of humans who had gathered together in exaltation of themselves and rejection of God And all of them suffered the same fate as the Tower of Babel. There is a pattern being established here. And it's a pattern that doesn't stop there. The Greek Empire rose 
and fell. The Roman Empire rose and fell. Byzantine Empire, the, the Muslim caliphate stretching across the Middle East and Northern Africa. The Ottoman Empire. What about the Kush in Sudan, the Nok in Nigeria, or the Aksum in East Africa? And if you say who, that's the point. They were huge. Continent changing, and you may never have even heard of their names. I've heard of them because I googled African kingdoms. I was like, oh, I've heard of one of those. Chinese dynasties, Mongols in Asia, across the Atlantic, we only find ruins of Olmecs, Mayans, and Aztecs. The British Empire covered the globe and fell to obscurity. Hitler attempted a third German Reich, was stopped, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and what about us? The United States of America and our cities. Are we still rising? We're not. Have we rejected God? We have. So the same pattern that stretches thousands of years past just continues to be repeated. And one writer said this, drawing my attention to this aspect of that, God has never tolerated this idea that man could build a city in any shape or form that was independent of him. Any nation that has been foolish enough to imagine itself to be a world conqueror has always been smashed and destroyed. It's true. Even a number of nations, empires that we don't even remember, never even have heard of, and can find nothing but a passing relation to. They thought that they would make a name for themselves. And God said, my name, not your name. And that starts all the way back here. Even the final laying low, as we we look into the the eschatological future and we peel back the veil into the supernatural, be like, well, what, what will the end of all things be? And we read in Revelation 18, God's ultimate victory is crushing the sinful city. And you know what the sinful city is? Babylon. Like the beginning and the end, God laying low the pride of mankind. But the first humbling of a city by God takes place right in the middle of the formation of nations that we read about in chapter 10. Because really, I think that there's an overlay here, right? The chapter 10 starts here chronologically and ends here, and I think Babel fits right kind of toward the beginning of those type of things. Right? The descendants are starting to multiply, but I think Babel would overlay that, and then that's why they started to disperse in those things. But as the nations are forming, they are also sinning. And as they sin, they experience God's judgment against them. And then they scatter. The Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And then they they travel from there. They travel from this one central location. They travel west and then south into Canaan and eventually Africa. Or they travel north toward Europe. Or they travel east into India and Asia. The text isn't concerned with the specifics. It's just they went Everywhere. Chapter 10 is the story of everyone, and chapter 11 is the dispersing everywhere. Uh, Here's one map that you probably can't see very good details of. Hopefully you have enough geography knowledge to see the Mediterranean top left, Red Sea snail right there, Arabian Sea and Persian Gulf. And so this is one potential aspect where the red is the descendants of Japheth, kind of heading heading east, even into the far east, and and kind of the, the... proto or the early European type civilizations moving north. You see Italy up there. And then uh, the descendants of Ham 
kind of take really center stage in a lot of these different empires around rivers and up north, around that fertile crescent where we'll see Israel, and then down into Africa, even down lower. And then the descendants of Shem are there in yellow. So this is just one uh, potential of how we see the migrations moving across these things. But that, that known world in the center of those type of things, as people are moving out, you see chapter 10 uh, following these type of paths. Tower of Babel. I'm going to assume that you are somewhat familiar with this text. You've at least uh, this story. If not, that's why I just told it to you. So now you're at least somewhat familiar. But as we're working through Genesis and we're trying to be like, okay, well, where is this pointing us? Right? We've, re- we've returned to that so often. It's not just about this text, but it's about what happens from this text into the rest of Scripture. It's a laying a foundation and setting up the first of patterns that we then begin to, to continue seeing. So God, right, scatters the nations. And we see that even in our own day across the globe. But have you ever asked the questions, will the scattered nations ever gather together again? And the answer is yes. But to see this, we need to go to the book of Acts. Please turn there. Acts chapter 2. Depending on how big your Bible is, it's about a thousand pages over. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning, uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts, right, we read of Jesus. He appears to his apostles and he teaches them. And then he orders them not to leave Jerusalem while they wait for the Holy Spirit to come and baptize them. And he then, the beginning of Acts, he commissions them. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then Jesus ascended into heaven as they were watching. A cloud took him out of their sight. And the apostles obeyed his command, and they waited in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, If we look at the text, try to count up, it's probably a little over a week that they waited until what we call the day of Pentecost. You've heard of that, at least that word, familiar from it, uh, with it from Acts chapter 2. Pentecost means 50th, as in the 50th day from something, a holiday determined by counting uh, from something. It's a, it's a Greek word. It's used to describe uh, this event that took place right at the conclusion of one of the most significant Jewish feasts found in the Mosaic Law. It's called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Seven Weeks. Seven times seven, 49 days. So this is right at the cusp of that, the completion of seven weeks after the Passover. Right? Another one of the most significant of holidays. And we read in the Gospels about Jesus' crucifixion happening around that time of Passover, and he teaches them after his resurrection. Right? They wait, and then at that 50th day from Passover... This feast of weeks, the people are gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, One author said this feast of weeks was one of the most popular uh, pilgrim festivals, even more so than Passover, and he speculated it had to do with the weather being better. I have no idea. Uh, But a lot of people would have been migrating, pilgrimaging toward Jerusalem for this feast. It's uh, mentioned, I think, in Leviticus chapter 23. Check a cross-reference if you want to read about that. Just don't do it right now. But Jews from all over the world would have, in obedience to the command that they lived under, come back and ascended to Jerusalem 
to be at the temple and to offer the sacrifices that they were required to offer. They wanted to come back to not just the country, not just to the city, but to the very place where God had put his name and said, this is where I, this is where I will be. You will come. You will gather. You will worship me here. So they come. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. Luke writes this, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, a sound that we read that I'm skipping over, sound of the Holy Spirit and everything coming from that, the multitude came together, crowds dispersed, gathered, and they're bewildered. Bewildered because each one was hearing them, the apostles, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking West Virginians Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own accents is kind of what it's getting at, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? As first, and back in Genesis 11, we saw the nations gather at the Tower of Babel, and now we see the nations gather near the temple during Pentecost. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. But do you see how significant this gathering of people was? Luke takes pains to make sure that we see how significant this is. Verse 5, there are Jews that have gathered together from every nation. And you're wondering, how did they get there? That's kind of like Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity, and everything else through the intertestamental period. Like They've had almost a thousand years to get everywhere, and they went. Verse 9 emphasizes the different... Um, locations of these type of things. Here's another map. Hopefully you can kind of recognize the, the overlay of those type of things and even the comparison. Uh, always just look for Italy, right? Look for the boot and you find the Mediterranean, you can kind of see everywhere else. But this is another map of just the nations represented at Pentecost. You see that same, they're coming from the north and from the south. They're coming from the east. They're coming from the west. Coming from Europe. They're coming from Africa. Every nation represented here. These pilgrims have traveled a long distance to make it to Jerusalem and to be at the temple to worship Yahweh. And do you see also the Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 type language? Verse 6, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, we hear each of us in his own native language. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Why was there a dispersion, not just of people, but of languages? Who caused that? God caused that. And now at Pentecost, with those gathered from those nations back together, who works so that they then hear in their own languages? The same God. A connection between these two passages. The same God who confused the languages of the nations at the tower now causes his gospel to be proclaimed in those very languages and many, many others. At this miraculous event at Pentecost, we see the, the temporary reversal of the judgment that fell at Babel. You remember at, at that tower, 
At the tower, the nations of the world insisted on speaking their own name in their one language. We will speak our name in our language. And now, as people from every nation of the world come together near the temple, they say this, wait, we hear his name in our languages. We, we will speak our name in our language. We hear his name in our languages. This isn't about the nations and their greatness and what they could do. It was about God. It was about God's greatness. And it was about what he had done through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a gathering to hear his name. To hear that he had died and had rose. And that forgiveness of sins was available through his name. But is, but is Pentecost everything that God has been pointing forward to for the nations? Because there's like a whole other series of like nation-type texts that I'm not walking through. So if you think it's like, well, yeah, nations, chapter 11, and then just jumps forward. It's not true. Like there's blessing promises. And then every, every chapter, just like every, every little bit, every book almost, is kind of like, by the way, nation. By, by the way, here's a Gentile for you. Right, so we're gonna do, you're gonna eradicate. You're gonna level the Canaanites to extinction, well, except for Rahab. Right, and this is like, and you come across these people. This is what I just said. I wasn't gonna preach. He's like, you come across these people, and you're gonna wipe them out. God's against them. Well, except Ruth. I'll just go ahead and bring her into the plan of God. Right, and all these other times, like, oh, he's for his people, but not for them. But then there's these promises of like, yeah, but I'm gonna bring them too. And so we start to see a fulfillment, but is Pentecost the fulfillment? Is that the climax of it? And it's not, certainly not. It was a wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning of the New Testament church gathered together, but it was rather small on a global scale. And even more than that, it was probably pretty small on a Jerusalem scale. I mean, we read about the success of this at the end of Acts 2, right? How many people? Do you remember? End of Acts 2, who, how many people are saved? 3,000. Whoa! Mega church. Well, uh, it's probably around 0.3% of the festival population in Jerusalem that accepted the message about Jesus. Let's say there's 100 people here today. That means that one-third of one of you thinks that the message is true. And then responsible then for convincing everybody else. Like, oh, well. Get pretty excited, but it's like, all right, well, is that's, that's it? Like, that's what we're excited about? Like, that doesn't seem like the climax. It's an insignificant enough percentage of the people that are gathered in Jerusalem that the leaders of the movement in like two chapters, the next thing that happens, that those leaders of the movement can be arrested and nobody does anything about it. And they're released. And a few chapters later, those same leaders... Uh, and then, actually, the church doubles. Oh, now we have what? Like, never mind. I'm not good enough at math to you know more. Twice as many. Five thousand are added to the church. Oh, now, now people will listen. Now it's significant. No, they arrest those same leaders and they beat them, and there's no consequences by the people. Like that's not the sign of a successful movement. And then it gets worse. Stephen is another uh, leader, servant of the leaders. He proclaims the good news of Jesus, and he's stoned to death by the crowd, right? There, there's a mob, 
executing mob judgment, the leaders are okay with it. The Romans do nothing about it. And it actually kicks off a persecution that follows his murder that is so severe that it causes the followers of Christ that are centered in Jerusalem to disperse. They leave Jerusalem and are scattered through the regions of, I don't know, Judea and Samaria, and then continue to spread to the utmost parts of the earth. There's a little bit of a question. Is this another, they're trying to stay? God said, I, didn't, I told you not to stay. I told you to go. Either way, God is at work. God worked through the enemies of his people to scatter them, and they went to the nations. Why do, I, why do I go through all of that? Because although we saw the nations gather near the temple at Pentecost, that is not the realization of the final goal. It's not everything that's the fulfillment of the promises. That was really just the beginning. That was the first fruits of God's gathering in of his people. And it was pointing forward to something far greater. Pointing forward to one final time when the scattered nations will gather together again. And this time we we see it in the book of Revelation. We see the nations gather around the throne in heaven in Revelation chapter 7. Would you turn there as well? We saw the nations gather at the tower, Babel. We saw the nations gather near the temple, Uh, during Pentecost, and then we see the nations gather around the throne in heaven. Revelation 7, John writes this, starting in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That, that is what we've been waiting for. Not Pentecost. Not just a small gathering of Jews that happen to live in all of these different nations. This gathering, we see the God who scattered now is the God who gathers his people from every nation. And not just 70 of them. Not just 70 nations, hundreds of nations. And from those nations, who knows how many tribes or people groups, some point to more right now, to more than 17,000 distinct people groups in our world today. And more than 7,000 languages. And that's not counting nations and peoples and languages that have died off, essentially have gone, going extinct. But just stop and think about this gathering. What is the makeup of this? What is the greatness of this representation and what does it say about God? What purpose have they gathered for? Why did the scattered nations come together? Was it to build a tower for themselves? Was it to proclaim the greatness of their name? No. Here, the nations gather around the throne in heaven to say, we will speak his name 
in our languages. That's the progression that I see, right? Where did we start? We're going to speak our name in our unified language. God says, no, you won't. Scatters them, disperses them, confuses their language. And then God in his mercy speaks the gospel in those languages. We hear of his name in our languages, but that's not the end. It's not just receiving that, but it's for the purpose of then all being drawn together into one gathering of all nations to say, now we're not going to speak about us. We want to speak about him, but it's not in one language. It's in all of their languages. It's like all of that judgment dispersion, then coming together, the gospel having gone to those nations, bears fruit that all of this uniqueness, this beautiful uniqueness across the world and across history, all gathers together in some unified, although distinct, chorus to say, we want to talk about his name. His worthy is him. In that city, in that place, around this throne, the center of everything, and it's not us, and it's not our name, and it's not our tower. We've been taken to heaven, and it wasn't on a staircase that we built. More precisely, they don't say we will speak his name in our languages. I know I put it in quotes. What they say is salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And this salvation stretching across the nations continues into John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. The nations are not dissolved. That's amazing to me. Revelation 21, 24, by the light of the glory of God, who is the lamb, by that light will the nations walk. The new heaven and the new earth, in that city, the new Jerusalem, right? The end of everything. By the light of the glory of God, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does that look like? Looks like the fulfillment of what was lost, the garden or at the flood, man's desperate attempt to hold it together at the tower, all of it pointing to and fulfilled at the throne where the nations will gather for the praise of the Lamb. We see that God will glorify himself by saving sinners from all nations. That's, that's the climax. The, the eternal climax. God will glorify himself by saving sinners from all nations. And, and it's just interesting to think, okay, I just jumped right out of Genesis and landed in Revelation, right? We've established a pattern of trying to do that in this. But how do we get from point A to point B? Like, how do you get from the tower to the, the, the temple, let alone how do you get from the tower to the throne? How do you get from humanity's sin at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to peoples from every nation, not scattered, but gathered around God's throne, worshiping at the end of time? And to understand that, I need you to flip all the way back to Genesis 11. Uh, not 10. I put the wrong. I don't know what that is. I think I was supposed to update that. Oh, no, we're not there yet. That's supposed to say 11, but don't worry about that yet. How do we get from the tower to the throne? The nations scattered to the nations gathered. Genesis 11, verse 10, interestingly, it's one of those boring genealogies, right? Nobody wants to read genealogy. Why do they put all these names in there? And what's interesting, Genesis 11, verse 10, picks up, Right where Genesis 5.32 ended, as if Genesis 6 through 11.9 never even happened. 
It's like there's this other story that we have to remember. Do you see that? After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100, and he had sons, and they did this. Do you see that? It's kind of like, it's like the, the whole flood narrative is like this little side excursus. Because there's this other story that's being traced. The story of what? The story of a line. The story of the line of the offspring of the seed of Eve, who must, that line must continue. The line must continue so that God's promised salvation can come through someone from that line. And so we have to pick up from the genealogy. We have to be able to continue tracing that. Back in Genesis 5, Moses had highlighted 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and now he highlights 10 generations from Shem, leading in verse 26, to someone named Abram. Let's learn a little bit about Abram. These are the generations of Terah. That's Abram's father. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. They went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Not to give too big of a spoiler alert, but Abraham is a bit of a main character in the rest of the book. The tower and the temple and the throne, three gatherings of the nations across the Bible and across history, revealing God's gracious plan for the nations, a plan of salvation through faith in his son, Jesus Christ a plan to glorify himself by saving sinners from all nations. The nations. If you read your Bibles looking for the phrase, you find it everywhere. In Psalm 2, God the Father promises this to his son, his king, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. All of this will be yours. Then in Isaiah 49, 6, God promises this about Jesus, the coming servant of the Lord. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations. Like right before that, it's like, you know what? Just Israel, not big enough. It's not going to be local. It's not going to be small. I'm going to make you as a light that shines to or for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Revelation 5, Christ Jesus, the lion, the lamb, he's praised as the only one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, the only one anywhere, anytime, who is worthy to take the scroll of God's sovereign plan and open its seals and bring it to completion. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain and by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. Japheth, 
Ham. Shem. Jesus' purchase. This is most certainly connected across this. And then he ransoms them and makes them a kingdom. Priests to our God, they shall reign on the earth. Fulfilling everything that God had said in the first place through Jesus. And this same Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, our Savior and our King has said to us as his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Lord, our God, God of the nations, the heavens and the earth, your purpose is clear. You will glorify yourself by saving sinners like us from all the nations. And your commission to your people is clear. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the success of that mission is guaranteed because John saw the great uncountable multitude of blood-bought worshipers from every nation. And so Jesus is obviously right. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord of the harvest, please send forth laborers into your harvest field. And may these laborers come from our midst. May we be part of fulfilling your purpose, glorifying Jesus to the nations. Would you strengthen us um, to, to go and to make disciples of our neighbors? Yes, but also please call out from people, men and women, boys and girls, from this gathering right now, call out from us to go to the nations for the everlasting glory of Jesus. Please. Amen.